Hello and welcome back to Giant Talk. I am Roger, I am your host, and I'm very, very pleased to be joined by uh, a, a an extra special guest uh, for, for Giant Talk today, for a, a gentleman called Benham Tabrizi. Now, Benham is uh, a lecturer at Stanford. He's been um, working at Stanford for over 25 years, specializing in the area of leading organizational transformation. Uh, he's an expert in organizational and leadership transformation and has helped thousands of CEOs and leaders plan, mobilize, and implement innovative transformational initiatives. He's no stranger to writing books because he's written 10 of them. And most recently, Going on the Offense, a leader's playbook for perpetual innovation. So welcome, Benham. Thank you for inviting me, Roger. Glad to be here. No problem, no problem. And we're also joined as well by Ilya Satrap, who is Benham's assistant, uh, research assistant. So welcome to you as well, Ilya. Thank you, Roger. No problem, no problem. So, Benham, I'm particularly keen uh, to, to to explore um, you know your work and your and your research. Um, as listeners know, we are a podcast that focuses on OKRs and themes surrounding OKRs. Um, and in our approach, we very much uh, advocate using OKRs to enable uh, innovation and transformation. So you know that's very much your wheelhouse. Uh, so very very keen to understand. You know your work, and in particular, your 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 the thinking that's that's gone into your your latest book, going on the offense. But you know you've worked at Stanford for twenty five years, so you obviously had some time elsewhere before that. And I understand you worked in IBM at one point, and you had a bit of a formative experience there that kind of uh, gave you a a, a, di- a bit of direction. So would you care to care to share that with us? Oh, absolutely. Um- so I was uh, I studied uh, computer science both as an undergrad and graduate. Uh, I, in, in graduate school, I studied uh, machine learning. At that time, AI was uh, more uh, algorithmic because we didn't have giant computers as we do today, mm-hmm. and it was very it was inconceivable to where we are today. Yeah, I started working in IBM. And I was applying uh, some of these machine learning thinking and uh, coding to some of their factories. And I had this idea uh, about how we can actually save uh, IBM quite a bit of money in the uh, manufacturing. So I went and talked to my manager. And uh, at that time, I was, I think, 22 years old. And he sat me down and he said, you know, let me just, let me just tell you what IBM is. IBM is a big log moving inside a, you know, on top of a very slow river. Hmm. You and I are just a couple of ants, (laughs) (laughs) barely floating and barely alive. So what the heck are you trying to do? Go back and do your work. Yeah. As you can imagine, Roger, I, this, this, this uh, 22-year-old shrank and shrank. And uh, it was an existential moment for me. 
and it was a defining moment of my life. And just, you know, uh, after that, not long after that, I went to Stanford and uh, I did my PhD in uh, strategy organizations and uh, uh, technology management. But, but the point that I, I, I've just always been aware of is that, you know, in small companies, people feel uh, large. They feel yeah. like they matter. And as organizations grow and grow and grow, people feel like they shrink. Yes. And, and so we need to flip that. And that's, that's been the driving force of my life, writing these books and talking to you today. Mm, I can remember from my own time working in, in large corporates, I always made it a very big part of, of my role as a leader to make sure that my people understood just how important their contributions were Wonderful. and how important their cog in the machine really was. And if their cog wasn't there, the machine wouldn't work. So, yeah, but it, it is, it, you're absolutely right. It does become increasingly difficult as the, the the size and scale of the organization grows, definitely. So, um, I, I mean, in particular, we, we, we want to dig into your, your, your work, uh, your current um, uh, work that has led you to uh, publishing Going on the Offense, or shortly, I think, because it's coming out in a week or so. Is that correct? Yes, it's coming out August 22nd, Going on okay. Offense, a leader's playbook for perpetual innovation, which I'm very excited about since it's a seven-year study I've done with uh, Stanford researchers, former Stanford students, and finally uh, it's coming out. Fantastic, fantastic. And I, I, my understanding is a large part of your work has focused on uh, uh, AI and you know, going on the offense is about in your in 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 your mind about leveraging innovation. AI presents a massive opportunity for innovation, arguably perhaps the biggest ever. So, in in your view, where are we today with AI and organizations? That's an excellent question, and uh, <clears throat> what I'd like to do is ask my uh, brilliant research assistant Ilya to share with you two major studies. I mean, these are not just really anecdotal studies. These are major studies that are done with control groups and so forth in terms of where we are with AI. And there are some fascinating results that Ilya is going to share with you. Ilya? Absolutely, yeah. So um, first, let's look at a Stanford and MIT call center study from April of this year. The study uses data from over 5,000 customer support agents in software companies who were introduced to a generative AI-based conversational assistant. Um, so they found that access to the tool resulted in an incredible 14% boost in productivity, and, and they measured productivity by the number of issues resolved per hour. Um, interestingly, the greatest impact was observed on novice and low-skilled workers with minimum impact on those more experienced. Um, and the study kind of concludes um, that this is because the AI model disseminates the potentially tacit knowledge of more able workers helping newer workers move down the experience curve uh, quicker. Um, the study also found that AI assistance improved significantly customer sentiment, reduced requests for managerial intervention, and improved employee retention, all groundbreaking um, findings. And the next study was also uh, done by MIT this time uh, only, uh, very recently again in March of this year. It examined the productivity effects of um, a generative artificial intelligence technology ChatGPT in this case, 
in the context of mid-level professional writing tasks. In a pre-registered online experiment, they assigned writing tasks to 444 college-educated professionals and randomly exposed half of them to ChatGPT. The results again were staggering, showing that ChatGPT substantially raises average productivity. Not only did the time taken decrease by 0.8 standard deviations, but also the output quality rose by 0.4 standard deviations. Again, it was discovered that inequality between workers decreased as ChatGPT compressed the productivity distribution by benefiting low ability workers more. Uh, and this is substantiated by the call center study we just talked about. Um, they concluded that ChatGPT restructures tasks towards idea generation and editing and away from rough drafting. And um, again, the three uh, final conclusions they found was that exposure to ChatGPT increases job satisfaction, increases self-efficacy, and it heightened both concern and excitement about automation technologies. So there's a quick overview about these two studies that ground us in the facts before we move on. Thank you, Ilya. And, and later, uh, Roger, we'll talk about uh, the uh, problems and the challenges with AI tools and the caveats, but we just sure. want to share with you what these two very comprehensive research talk about. Just to give a, a narrative, a real narrative just happened uh, a few months ago that confirms everything Ilya just talked about is I was traveling to in Asia and I got a call from a senior executive at one of the largest banks there telling me that, uh, you know, we have created this new wealth product and uh, our salespeople, our people in the branch and, and those that are customer facing cannot sell it because there is this competition between that and other products, mm -hmm. issues with uh, understanding. And, uh, and I basically told them, why are you talking to me? I have no clue about how to sell. <laughs> this is not my real house. <laughs> and he said, well, I have no one and I know you will figure it out. So please take care of this for me. And then he just hung up on me and he's a close friend of mine, by the way. So I went to chat GPT, Roger, and I wish I could show you the presentation because I showed it to Ilya and he was just floored. It's like 20 pages of full of information. And I kept, you know, I kept playing with it. I asked questions, you know, of course, you know, I prompted it. Uh, and then he gave me a rough draft and I said, well, put it into presentation, put it into slides. So you just go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. I, I looked at some YouTube videos. And lo and behold, I was ready. And I went in there, I told everyone the truth that this is not my area, but I've done, a, but, but I've done enough research to be dangerous. Yeah. We had a, a half a day uh, workshop. And I must say, I've, you know, I, I, as you, I'm sure you're the same way, we've done these workshops before. So at least we know how to engage people. Yeah. But the topic was definitely uh, out of my wheelhouse, but the, the, the results was amazing. The, 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 impact that he had in their sales, the type of things that the, the feedback they gave. And this really emphasizes the fact that if somebody's a novice and is trying to get up to speed to be a mediocre plus type of a thing, and they're careful, of course, I check some of these things with some of the experts I knew locally yeah. in the area, just to make sure I'm not really messing this up. At the end of the day, it was just, it was amazing. There was no way without ChatGPT I could have gone in front. And I learned so much about my own business in terms of how can I do better and so forth. So it is a great testament about what's possible. So there you go, ChatGPT in consultancy. Exactly, exactly. <laughs>
Okay. Okay. So, uh, you know, I, I mean, that those studies present some really interesting data. Um, I, I, I mean, there's a lot of positives in that. Uh, I, but I, I, there's the, I think we all know there's a lot of uh, fear and confusion out there in organizations, uh, particularly in leaders, around how the hell do they make sense of this? You know, not all organizations are right at, uh, uh, you know, at the front of this, you know, ahead of the curve. Um, a lot of them are still trying to get their heads around it and, and work out how to how to make use of it. So how how can we help or how could you uh, how could you recommend leaders kind of work to embrace this especially if they're feeling that fear and confusion yeah that's that's an excellent question and you know as you know uh, I've, I've written two articles in Harvard Business Review based on uh, going on offense uh, about the book and this particular question, and just recently uh, published an article in Fortune on on Tesla and EV. Uh, there's a lot of fear out there, as you mentioned, uh, in terms of people losing their jobs, and there's a lot of anxieties with this new technology. Hmm. Uh, the uh, the good news is historically we've never really experienced macro level unemployment from new technology in the long run. So AI is really unlikely to make people jobless, you know, in the long term. Uh, the, uh, you know, six, just we just got to remember, at least in U.S., 60 percent of current jobs had not been invented in 1940. And more than 85 percent of employment growth over the last 80 years, more than 85 percent explaining the tech driven creation of occupation. So without tech driving occupation, we would not have had such a growth globally. Mm-hmm. Will. Yeah, all these uh, you know uh, disruptions displace jobs while creating new ones. However, we all know that with ChatGPT and generative AI, it's moving really rapidly. And you know, compared to the rise of electricity around the 20th century, it took factories decades to switch from steam power to central drive yeah. shafts and to electric motors. But this thing is just at warp speed. So it's very important. It's very, very important that, uh, you know, that organizations uh, really focus on how they could go on offense on this particular innovation. As, as you mentioned, this is the innovation of, uh, of uh, perhaps uh, our lifetime or maybe even in history. There was this thing where uh, made a lot of noise where they said software is going to eat the world. We believe uh, AI is going to eat the world. We also believe we're in the early stages, a lot to be determined. And uh, it's important that organizations could could understand and embrace it, if you will. Um, mm. The uh, AI, you know, different different organizations are adopting and integrating differently right now in organ in, in you know ai goldman sachs you know predicted that companies would use it to eliminate a quarter of all their current work tasks so there's a lot of fear about losing jobs and the whole uh story and the whole point that i like to really emphasize is that if your organization goes on offense and and and, and apply this in uh in a manner, uh, you can actually increase productivity. You can serve more. You don't have to get into 
this need for completely uh, letting people go. And as you know, there are lots of problems with these. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about this with these tools. And a lot of organizations who laid off massively, now they realize that they can rely on these things to basically do uh, do all the work and so forth. So um, the, 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 the point is innovation. We, we really need to make sure that, uh, you know, we're aggressive about this that through innovation with AI, we create new jobs and, you know, you know, macroeconomically speaking, this is good for the economy. This is good for organizations. And uh, it's important that these organizations position themselves to thrive in the long run. Yeah. I think <laughs> if I, if I was a, a change manager, <laughs> head of transformation in, in an organization, perhaps, I think I would be uh, think regarding this as my biggest challenge in term, from an organizational perspective, from a mindset perspective, from a motivational perspective, from a human perspective, because there is so much out there that's in the news on a daily basis around AI. And some of it is, well, not so much relevant to the current tools that are available publicly. A lot of the fear, I think, is coming from the tools that are still in the laboratory that are not available for us to use yet. Um, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how things progress in that respect because there's obviously talk around regulation and uh, or possible regulation, but uh, anyway. So how can so okay with what we have available to us here and now? How can organisations start to leverage AI uh, to to gain a competitive a competitive advantage? Um, the the most important first step that organisations need to do if they're committed to to apply this to gain a competitive advantage is uh, what uh, I call an operating principle. And the leadership, the, the, uh, the, you know, this is not something the CEO or the senior executives should delegate to further down the line and so forth. They need to be engaged. They need to bring their smartest people who know about AI. They need to uh, work with the outsiders who are experts in this area for the organization to come up with operating principles that fits their need. And some of the things that I like to propose is, for example, the organization need to decide what kind of data sets are employees allowed to plug in in third-party LLMs. For example, if you are a doctor, you shouldn't put patient's data in no. chat. No. But, but even organizations, they, they are very um, adamant about, uh, you know, particular data being on ChatGPT and being available for public. So this is a big issue and, and there has to be some, there has to be boundaries there. Uh, there's a lot of movement right now about creating in-house LLMs to avoid these issues. And so it's very important that organizations uh, create these boundaries and be clear about the, the, the data policy. Second, organizations should also be made, employees should be made aware of any biases rooted in these AI models. We all have heard this terrible, terrible biases that is, is happening, the hallucination and incorrect information. Uh, my, uh, my colleague, Ricardo Vargas, talks about the 5% and 85%, and that is you get involved in the first 5% of prompting, and then the last 85% you get involved as 
Ilya just mentioned, uh, you talk about the, the writing part. But as we all know, someone who's doing a lot of writing, the first draft is usually the hardest thing. <laughs> that actually does your first draft, but really you get involved in the last 15%. I would even add to 5 to 85% that you need a lot of milestones in between where you check, you check, you re-enter, as I did when I was in South, uh, Southeast Asia yeah. for my presentation. So people need to be made aware of, of these biases and, and issues and so forth. So that's the second one. Third one, uh, employees and organization as a whole should really have that experimental approach to AI. And, and as you know, innovation is all about experiment. It's, it's, it's a very deliberate experimentation. And it's because we're early on in the evolution and uh, we want to remain in cutting edge, got to make sure that there's a basic level of knowledge across the entire organization. There are lots of great courses in Udemy. Udemy, there is a Coursera, there's Stanford, MIT, there are lots and lots. Of, Google has a lot of great uh, AI courses. I suggest yeah. people take these base, base level courses. Organizations need to get their people up to speed in these, these type of courses. Um, and then, you know, uh, got to gotta get your people to say, hey, try one tool a week, uh, you know, experiment with them. Um, and then also, also create a committee, uh, which I call the, 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 you know, the pioneers, AI pioneers, where they would uh, basically be a mixture of senior executives and people in front line and other AI people, either experts or those who really want to get up to expertise very quickly, where they try things and they, they look at these uh, operating principles and constantly mm -hmm. prove it. Um, they also need to look at AI not just as a cutting cost, which I which I believe is a defensive move, but finding new verticals, finding new growth areas, finding new businesses, and finally, I think a very critical part of this should also be reskilling. AI. Uh, does help with a lot of non-value added activities, a lot of automation, a lot of things that could be non-value added, and people could could be reskills to do something more upstream and and so forth. So there has to be a deliberate way uh, to do this. Um, having said that, I want to now talk about uh, how the findings of the book and the research of the book could help because as you mentioned earlier, uh, the book is about innovation. It's about perpetual innovators. These organizations yeah. are not one-time innovators where they go away. They've, they've just like nonstop innovators. And the four, exam the, the four companies that uh, came out really ahead in our work, and by the way, um, BCG also did a survey recently with these are my work and their work was independent and all their four showed up in their top five. Hmm. Uh, these uh, are companies such as Apple, mm -hmm. you know, two CEOs, and they're still pretty much running in all cylinders. Tesla, it's, it's basically, as I wrote in the recent Fortune uh, magazine, they're becoming a standard for EVs and EV chargers. Um, Amazon, which is a fascinating organization starting as retail, and then moving on into cloud and Alexa and, and so forth. So that's another organization. By the way, 1.3 million people work in Amazon. So how yeah. do you... And they, seri they seriously dis disrupted some very traditional, stable marketplaces, haven't they? 
already. They have, they yeah. have. And mm-hmm. you know, this book, uh, in this research, we went into depth and depth talked to dozens of people who are former executives, current executives. We studied uh, the things that are written about Amazon. And then the other one is Microsoft, which is which I think is an amazing story of mm. an organization that usually organizations that have been really, really great, like say 20, 30, 40 years ago, they don't really well do well. They they kind of go, you know, go away. But Microsoft, uh, thanks to their CEO, Satya Nadell, they have uh, reconnected to their soul and they've had a great, great comeback. So those are some of the organizations that we talk about. We looked at uh, uh, 26 companies, so we don't have survival chip bias. Uh, we also looked at failing companies such as Borders and, uh, you know, uh, Nokia yeah. and, and others. And we divided these uh, these teams into these these, these uh, uh, organizations to high, medium, and low agility and innovation. And we also had the surveys of over six thousand people with academics, executives, to just make sure that this survey and this work is is uh, is well researched. And the point I want to make is evidence based. I yes. wanted to come up with evidence based. You know, there's a lot of Great, great work my colleagues do, which they study one company and go into depth. I was more interested in looking at a set of successful companies because there's no one size fit all. And my dream, Roger, was for organization to, to decide there's no way like you can become a Tesla. And you know, 95% of organizations yeah. are not like these four. So the question is, how could I be 10% better? And which areas I can learn from Apple, which areas I can learn from Microsoft and what have you. So for me, that is just a fascinating mm. uh, a challenge that I, I, I worked on with these type of organizations. So basically, the in a, in a nutshell, the key results is uh, found out uh, eight drivers of agile innovation, of perpetual innovation, um, from existential pur- purpose to obsession with customers, to startup mindset, uh, you know, radical collaboration, high tempo by modality. So we talk about those these eight points, and we talk about also three archetypes about what is a successful innovation and perpetual innovation. And these organizations are very ferocious and they're very courageous, if you will. Mm, so mm. first, I'd like to talk to you about one of my favorite, which is really the the the, uh, the second chapter of the book, which is really about existential purpose. And I talk about AI in this context. You know, existential purpose inspires people to do the hard work of transforming an organizations. Uh, you know, when Satya Nadell came, uh, became a CEO in 2014, he wanted to connect to the soul of Microsoft. Um, earlier, I've written a book called Inside Out, which is about how do you bring the best version of every leader out. He really had the entire organization go through this inside out type of a connection with the outside in, with, in terms of where Microsoft was going. Had, had amazing, authentic conversation to bring mm. everybody along. And then he did this very bold, courageous move of getting out of the Nokia business, which they just had spent so much money. And then he looked at AI. He wanted to be AI first company. And then he went to a series of acquisition 
And there's a concept that I've talked about in an HBR article that I wrote, uh, acquisition transformation. So through a lot of buying these organizations, including OpenAI, it even helped Microsoft accelerate in transformation. Well, their so head of technology came from LinkedIn, from the LinkedIn acquisition. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. LinkedIn acquisition yeah. also has been, has been uh, very good. So basically um, he has made a massive cultural change and the whole point, I mean, this is, this is the nugget I want to really, really underline uh, is that in order to adopt AI, in order to use AI as a competitive advantage, you need to transform your culture. Hmm. You can't just drop AI and parachute it down to your organization and think that, oh, we're, we're AI organization, which a lot of organizations now are unfortunately paying lip service. You gotta do it hand in hand, transform your organization, adopt AI at the same time. So if you wanna adopt innovation, you also gotta unleash the power of every individual in your organization. And I'll talk more in detail, but this whole open AI, and as you know, sometimes late last year when Microsoft came and, and you know, presented this, it basically took uh, Google's thunder. And I love yes. these two. I, I did it in an earlier article in HBR in February. And I basically said, uh, you know, these two organizations are great to compare because at some point Google had 70%, 70% of all the AI talent including when they bought the, all the top AI talent, included DeepMind where they bought, but at the same time, they got completely, uh, you know, uh, taken over by uh, Microsoft. Now, in my view, Google, I would never, uh, you know, uh, write Google off. I believe they have an amazing talent. They can still turn around, but they got their work cut out because they need to really go through some of the things that we talk about here. Yeah. Um, second, Go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say with Google, I mean, I don't know whether this is um, the, the correct interpretation, but it was almost, it seems almost like they became so reliant upon search as being their cash cow that anything else that could potentially distract or, or, or diminish that in any way were seen to be, you know, maybe they became more conservative than and more cautious than perhaps they like to think they were. Absolutely. I mean, mm. it's, it's, it's a combination of they were making so much money out of that and there was such mm. a cash cow. And it is definitely being, being cautious and not being bold enough. And by, mm. by the way, I have a chapter on courageous and, and, and how courageous uh, organizations that are perpetually trans uh, innovative are. So they were not courageous. They were more incremental type of changes. Mm. And, uh, and there was also a lot written recently with their former employees, how uh, toxic the culture became in the past few years where people would go make a lot of money and, and were not really bring their best out and, and so forth. So it's a combination of these that led to, to this issue. Nevertheless, because they have the talent at the end of the day, you know, uh, they could turn this around. One, mm -hmm. of the, one of the reasons I really like going on offense because uh, we talked about this earlier, just like you, I love uh, soccer and what you guys call football in, 
in, uh, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, if you only play defense, it's not enough. And the whole book is about sometimes you just got to go on offense. Yeah. And it's, it's got a lot of energy and excitement to it. And uh, AI is definitely a place to go on offense. But to go on offense, you also need to be bold. You need to also take some risks. And the next, the next point is really a startup mentality. You know, uh, it, is, it is important. And this is what uh, uh, Microsoft did well. And this is such an important thing with AI because Microsoft, when uh, embraced open AI, uh, they adopted it. Uh, they wanted to be in an AI first company. They pivoted very quickly. They're currently also buying other AI organization. So it's not just about courage and flexibility. It, startup mindset is it really is about ferocious commitment to big mm. achievement, a hero's journey to address great challenges. <laughs> and instead of just predictably churning out good product, it's about uh, you know create something extraordinary. So the you know the premium of of uh, you know looking around flexible partnership with others is the type of things that uh, you know uh, they've done in Microsoft, and Amazon does that. Amazon is also very ferocious. It's 1.3 million organization that oftentimes act like a startup. Yeah, they 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 had no expertise in AI, but they picked it up. And the Echo Speaker and Alexa are some of their thing. And, and just um, the other day, they came up with a killer uh, quarterly report, which I just wrote a piece on it, and I'm hoping to publish it this week or next week, giving a lot of credit to Andy Jassy. And, the talking of, and, and his talk was, we're just going to adopt AI all over Amazon, and it's part of every product. So again, they're going on offensive, on offense with, uh, with AI. The next one, which I'm also very, very excited. Just, just, just before you do, the thing that really uh, struck me about the entrepreneurial mindset, uh, which which Setia did at um, at Microsoft, was that he he cleared the way. Uh, he seemed to remove barriers. Some might say bureaucracy, um, particularly for the engineers, because he knew that that was where the innovation perhaps was going to be fueled. That's where it was gonna, it was really gonna come from. And he, kind of, from what I understood, he seemed to clear the way and make it easier for them to just crack on. Absolutely, and, and in the in the uh, book and in the article, we talk about the fact that he raised the status of engineers, mm. and he took away the friction that they were facing. Mm. And and this is part of the unleashing talent that I'm. A, a big believer that unless you unleash talent, uh, and and there's there there in every chapter we have examples of like Microsoft. What in this area? What did Amazon? In the area of bold or startup mentality, what is it that Tesla did? And and what is it that companies that didn't succeed, like Borders and and others, uh, did? That uh, what what led to their failure? So this whole thing about uh, friction and and uh, my colleagues uh, here at Stanford, Bob Sutton and Hagi Rao, they're writing a book on friction that's coming out next year that talks about how organizations just create these frictions. Mm. And it, it's, a, it's anathema to unleashing talents and so forth. So um, one other, one last uh, thing uh, that I want to also talk about, characteristics I want to talk about is, is bimodal operation. And bimodal is it's really about being ambidextrous. 
And uh, I'm going to ask Ilya to help me out on this, but it's, it's one of my favorite one. It's also based on uh, the doctoral thesis I did in 94 at Stanford, which talked about the fact that if you do iterative prototyping, you can actually get to market quicker, which was the foundation of design thinking and agile yeah. development. So uh, there are some really interesting things that, uh, you know, about bimodal approach that is fascinating. For example, I earlier in my career, I also worked with Intel after I finished Stanford PhD. I worked with Andy Grove. And they were amazing in terms of execution, execution. But in area of, for example, imagination, in area of experimentation, like the way Bezos has done it or Apple has done it, they were not as good. And that became their Achilles heel. So, Ilya, mm-hmm. why don't you talk about the bimodal approach and why this is so critical in both AI and also going on offense? Yeah, so, so as we know, most big companies inevitably lapse into an incremental mode of progress where managers and teams focus on ironing out kinks, putting out fires, and making small improvements to an already successful product or service. But this is terrible for AI, which requires a completely different mode, an open mind with lots of fundamental experiments. The obvious solution is to go bimodal, as Behnam has touched on. Um, one part of the organization scales up, supports, and tweaks the existing offerings, while another explores the frontiers with new offerings, technologies, methods, and structures. However, it's remarkably hard to be ambidextrous because the dominant incremental mode keeps pushing the experimental mode to accept its disciplines. Solutions such as entrepreneurship rarely work unless overseen by a gifted leader uh, who manages this political conflict. Mm. Biomodal is going to be especially crucial for AI. Not only will companies need to keep the lights on and revenue flowing while they experiment with AI, but they'll also have to iron out the kinks and whatever advances they make. And soon enough, they'll need to run Biomodal even for AI itself. Um, and, but for now, uh, a bimodal approach that Bernhard touched on earlier, organizations and their HR departments can focus on upskilling their workforce with AI proficiency courses run by the likes of Coursera, Google, Stanford, etc., um, to provide a baseline of understanding within an organization. And simultaneously, organizations should put together a group of experts, what Bernhard uh, calls the uh, AI pioneers, to brainstorm, experiment, and constantly search for, for new ways to really change the game with AI. You know, in order to kind of uh, conclude, Roger, all of this uh, amazing conversation we've had, um, but let me let me also, I know you we, you and I talked about OKR because OKR, I think, is very critical mm-hmm. to innovation. And I'd like to add, uh, add a little bit to that. Um, when you have an ambidextrous organization, first of all, it's not easy because <laughs> the way you, you, like for example, let me just talk about Amazon for a second. I studied the uh, fulfillment centers, Amazon, and talking about OKR, my goodness. Um, Roger, you're gonna, you're gonna love this story. I, uh, my, my nephew, uh, which I talk about in this book, he had, uh, right out of school, he had like uh, several hundred people working for him in, uh, in fulfillment center. He, he, he had a tough time getting a job so yeah. they told him a night shift in Amazon. He embraced it, and then right. he did well. He did really well there, <laughs> working with blue-collar workers, and he had to, you know, uh, uh, adjust to this environment. And boy, I've 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 seen him unleash his talent. So basically, he was we were we were interviewing him, and he was talking about how, um, you know, for example, let me just share with you some things. For example, if let's say a package is late. 
they would FedEx it to you so you get it on time. They, they, they incur costs because they're so obsessed about customer. Mm-hmm. They wash these OKRs. Uh, and then, you know, I ask him, what if like one of your employees is not meeting their OKRs? Uh, how do you manage it? And then he's like, well, we, we, uh, we uh, address it on a quarterly basis. You know, we give feedback. And I said, wow, that's great, Cyrus quarterly basis you know that's that's nice that's what most organizations do he said no you don't understand i'm talking about every two hours <laughs> Order okr for for amazon is every two hours yeah now, if if you go to a uh, a lab where they you know they come up with the latest uh, experiments on uh, cloud or Alexa or the way the Firefly was put together and, and follow up uh, Alexas and, and so forth, what you find is that it's very different. Those OKRs are much more iterative. Oh, absolutely. More, yeah. Are more milestone oriented. For example, they say we have no clue they what's going to They don't have data at that point to, to make it, uh, to make a metric, to base a exactly. metric on. Yeah. So they know, but they know, like, for example, in the next two weeks, what we're going to do, how, what we're going to test, what we're going to find. And once they get that, then maybe they know they have more visibility four weeks down the line, six weeks down the line. So they're not as, uh, you know, focused per se, but they're very good with drawing the, the line in the sand in terms of, okay, you have two or three months to do simulation. Let's see the results. Let, and they constantly change Hmm. Course in a in a startup mode and pivot and by the way that's what Silicon Valley is Silicon Valley, it's because of how organizations does just iterate their their way to innovation sure they pivot and so forth so uh, it is a completely different way so if you get a manager who runs this fulfillment center and have him run one of these uh, you know labs they'll 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 just completely ruin the lab. And vice versa. So <laughs> this is where I think Intel uh, Achilles heel was, was they were amazing in those type of fulfillments. And by the way, Amazon picked up a lot of those execution techniques, uh, you know, disagree and commit a lot of cultural elements from, uh, from Intel, but they also mastered that other completely different organization mm. process model. Mm. Yeah. And this is something which, you know, we work on, with our clients and we've seen it in many organizations where there's a, there's a, a, um, there's a a challenge to kind of manage the two different speeds, if you will, that, that those two different environments, two different challenges, two different areas present. Um, You've got the fast moving operational side of the enterprise, but then you've also, you also need to have that, that the 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 where's where's the next big thing where's the transformation where's the innovation where's the growth coming from um and they they work at different clock speeds exactly exactly yeah, yeah. So, so yeah very so just, much so just to summarize you know uh, our great conversation you know companies can adopt these drivers uh, overnight but they can start moving toward it and have serious commitment uh you know uh one, one thing I also want to share with your readers, these drivers like startup mentality, being bold by model also work really well for the level of individuals. In fact, I've, uh, I've sent a, a, a piece to Wall Street Journal 
where it basically talks about how these eight characteristics actually fits with individuals in terms of their own career, whether they're executives or frontline manager, mm-hmm. frontline employee, how could they actually be bolder, have that startup mentality, by model thinking. So those, those are also critical at that individual level, if you will. Um, bottom line, humanity never thrives when it fears innovation, you know. And uh, as, as uh, uh, Tim Cook mentioned when he talks about Steve Jobs, hey, why don't I just play Tim Cook talking about Steve Jobs? Because I think it's a great ending to this uh, great uh, interview. Let me just uh, share with you a, a conversation Tim Cook just recently had on Steve Jobs. The thing that Steve taught me was that the joy is in the journey. And, you know, I used to always think about the next thing and uh, always sort of put off the happiness until the next thing occurred. And, of course, the next thing never occurred. <laughs> and, uh, but he taught me the joy was in the journey. And so when I talk to kids these days and people beyond kids, I remind them of that. Uh, because I think if you live your life that the joy is in the journey, you're going to have a lot happier life. So yeah. the joy of going on offense is in the journey, Roger. And uh, I appreciate uh, for the time you had and uh, enjoyed this conversation. Benham, Elliot, uh, I hugely enjoyed it as well. Thank you very, very much. I'm sure our listeners will have as well. I think if there's one thing practically, which I personally am taking away from this, um, it is to ensure that all my team are getting on on are going on uh, AI training <laughs> very soon. <laughs> um, if I may add one more, yeah, try, sure. Try one two every week, yeah, and yeah. play with it, and uh, you know because. Some of them are probably using it. And this is what I tell a lot of executives. You know, you can't just forbid people from you. Some of them are using it, but also let them know about this 585% rule that, look, if you use it, really check and check and check. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've played with GPT myself um, so far, but um, yeah, it's only been a play. It hasn't, I haven't used it in, that, in anger, so to speak. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm sure there's a lot more that we can, we can personally be doing with it that's for sure Benham yeah huge thanks um, very appreciative of your time and uh, thank you very much for listening and I look forward to you joining me on another episode of Giant Talk in the very near future take care now thank you Roger bye bye